the world is better when we are all able to show up as our most authentic selves, as our biggest self, as our most lit up self, free from fear and shame. And I hope that that is a mission that we can all get on board with, no matter what your identity. Welcome back. This week we have a repeat guest. Ray McDaniel is back on the program. (laughs) You might remember Ray's episode from a little over a year ago, but they have a new book out called Gender Magic, which I got to read an early copy of and I absolutely loved. They were working on it the last time they were here. And honestly, I I learned so much and, and got to parse out some of my favorite parts in this episode, which you're about to hear, we get into talking about design-centered thinking, how they approach decision-making, the importance of kinship and making friendships more romantic and making romantic relationships more friendly and, and so much more. I think Ray is really cool and I'm happy that I got to have this conversation and that you get to listen to it. So I can't believe it's already June when this is coming out. If you're listening to it in real time, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, but we're taking a summer Friday of sorts. We're releasing every other week for a little while. So this will give you a chance to catch up on some of the long nearly three hour episodes that maybe you didn't listen to in one sitting or explore the plethora of other podcasts. But for now, here's my conversation with therapist, certified sex therapist, and author of the new book, Gender Magic, Ray McDaniel. Okay, welcome back, Ray. I'm so happy to see you. I was just saying the last time you were here was I think just over a year ago, and we were talking about you writing your book. I think, where were you in the process then? Do you remember? If it was a year ago, I was probably, I was right in the middle of it because I was finishing up the last chapters in like January of this year. So I I must've been right in the midst of it. Yeah, that seems right. Cause I remember us talking about your writing process and that was feeling really good to you. And I remember you telling me a little bit about what the book was going to be about, and I was stoked. And it's so full circle to have read it now and to get to talk to you about it because I I have spent the last several days with you. And I got, I even got an extension because we were going to record a couple days ago and we pushed it. And so I got to spend even more time with you and your work. And you have the most soothing voice and thank you. I love listening to you and you read the audiobook which is really great. Yeah, I was really excited to be chosen to read the audiobook. They make you audition for your own audiobook if you didn't know that. Um so I was very excited to do it myself. 
Wow. I can't imagine anyone else reading this book because I I have it in, in both forms, not to brag, <laughs> which was really <laughs> actually nice. And to be able to see it because there's a lot of exercises in here, but mm -hmm. I also, you know, I've, I've heard you on not just mine, but a lot of, a lot of podcasts as I was preparing for the last one. And I, I love the sound and, and cadence of your voice, but I, I did oddly know that because my friend Christy has read her um, two audio books and, and she told me the same thing. And I'm so happy it worked out for both of you because when it, when you're reading a book that is so personal and, prescriptive but with such story it it really feels correct to, to have you read it and you have a great voice thank you i appreciate that the book is called gender magic and it's been out for barely any time the day we're recording this so how has the last month or so felt since it's been out Oh, it's been amazing. So right now, as we're as we're recording this, it's only been out a week. And so it's still so fresh to me. Um, I had a big book release party and celebration at my favorite local queer bar. And it was just so special to see both old friends and new friends and strangers show up to to talk with me about the content and gender magic and to just celebrate the release of it into the world. I've got to see it at bookstores, um, signed a couple of them. And then I'm starting to get in what I think is the most exciting part, which is actual feedback from people who are reading the book and actual reactions, because I've been holding all of this for so long. And I'm excited to continue the conversation with people as they are actually able to engage with the material. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure because it's just been something that you and your editor and, you know, any early readers that you've had take a look at it. But it it reminds me of George Harrison said this thing after the Beatles when he put out whatever his first record is. I always think of this because it has the phrase let it out in it. But he was like, you know, I had a lot of songs I was thinking about during the Beatles and I, you know, I felt pretty constipated with it. And I just, I'm really happy to have it out. And I feel like anytime there's a big project like this, I'm I'm sure that release probably feels really good and almost healing in a way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It does. Yeah. I fully resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to send you the, the article. I, I think please do get a kick out of it, but okay. So you're a therapist, you're a certified sex therapist, you're a transgender diversity and, and inclusion specialist, and you run a practice in Chicago. And, and you, I'm kind of reviewing for people who haven't listened to our first episode, but I hope people do go go back and, and listen to that on this show because, you know, we, we go into your, your background there, which is, which is also in the book, but you have this incredible mission to help people gender transition with less suffering and more ease and more agency. And last time you were here, you talked about how you had somewhat recently at the time expanded your team because you saw an increase in clients during the pandemic. And then you had started writing your book. And now, you know, even, you know, in the years since, I'd love if you could talk about how the process of writing the book was 
dictated by what you saw in your practice and what you saw in the news and the world around you and how that influenced, you know, what you were writing and what you were editing in the last year. Yeah. So it's been a really interesting process over the past year because when I started writing this book in early 2021, yes, things were happening in the world. You know, there was anti-trans folks out there. There always are. But in the past year, we've seen such an uptick and an aggressive uptick in anti-LGBTQ and specifically anti-trans legislation and hate that has been coming up. You know, it's about to be one of the primary, quote unquote, moral issues of the next presidential campaign. And that changes the landscape. And I found myself questioning as I was writing this book about trans joy and pleasure and and play and how to explore gender with a lot of, of ease, if what I was talking about was still relevant in our current legal landscape. And I came to the conclusion that it absolutely is because it has to be. You know, if we are all, and I use we as trans folks, are always focused on what we are running away from, that puts you in a very specific part of your brain. It puts you in that survival aspect of your brain. And sometimes that's needed. But what I saw was missing was the other side of the coin of what are we moving towards? When we talk about gender transition, what are we transitioning to? And what I mean by that is gender transition period is never the point. It's always that you get more freedom to be yourself in the world in order to do all the amazing things that you're meant to, to show up to your relationships in new ways, to be present with your kids, to make art, to be creative. It is always in service of you living your best life. And the focus of gender magic is on that best life. What does that look like? How can we get there? And I think it's more important than ever, given what we're seeing in in the US and worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you you kind of talk about that right out of the gate and well, you say in the, the book, one of my favorite parts was gender is a galaxy. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. So one of the things that I hear a lot from allies, and I, I want to say first, I wrote Gender Magic with a couple of audiences in mind. One of them was obviously trans and non-binary folks, people who are exploring gender. The other, though, is anybody who has a loved one or wants to understand more about the gender binary, what that means for them, and what gender freedom means. Um, so when I talk about gender as a galaxy, I think about this metaphor of when we look up at the night sky, and I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of experiences of just staring at stars and being so completely in awe of what I was seeing, even though I have no clue what is out there. Even the top scientists in the world are just really beginning to learn about the complexities and the vastness of space and the cosmos. But here's the thing. The fact that we don't know 
as much about it as we would like to, and we'll probably never fully understand it, doesn't stop us from engaging with it with awe and excitement and with curiosity instead of being just fearful of it. And I see a lot of people coming to the conversation about gender diversity and trans folks with this fear or with this block because they don't understand it completely. And I want to invite people into this idea that you don't have to, that it's always going to be bigger and more vast and more complex than we can fully understand. And that's a good thing. It invites us into experiencing it with curiosity and awe and excitement, the same way that we look up at the night sky and wonder what all is out there. Yeah. You're so good at metaphors and you know the the one at the beginning of the book that you talk about about gender expression feeling like you were wearing the wrong size shoes and and this one with the galaxy like so many of them just just go right in which makes you so wonderful at at this job and at, at writing and I'm sure so helpful working with with clients as a clinician too and and that one in particular really went right in for me. I, I I especially love that. I heard you speaking with, in in preparation for this, a, a woman who, she is a doctor, and you mm-hmm. were talking about language being limiting and your, your patience and your understanding of just listening to her perspective of, of I, I think she was working in the field for a long time and, and just your understanding and your empathy, it, it it really speaks volumes of, you know, how you do this work. And I I loved that. And and something else in the book that you talk about so clearly is body respect over body love. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yes. So I first started this book with this concept of body love or even body neutrality. I was contrasting body love and body neutrality. And I got an opportunity to talk to Lindo Bacon, who is who wrote the book Health at Every Size, who's also a non-binary person, came out after they they wrote that book and reflected on this idea that even when we are contrasting body love with another idea, neutrality doesn't quite grasp it. It's more about respect. And this idea of contrasting those is that in the society that we live in and in our brains, which are so complex, it is a very high ass to say that we're always going to love our bodies or love every inch of our bodies. That isn't true for anybody that I know of. Trans, cisgender, doesn't matter. That is a hard thing to do. But what we can always do is no matter how we might feel about our bodies, we can always show ourselves body respect and show ourselves active love, even if we are not feeling that within ourselves. And I find that that is a much more attainable goal uh, instead of feeling like you need to feel it before you can act on it. Yeah. Yeah. Lindo was one of my early guests on on this show many years ago and their work really had an impact on me and in, in eating disorder recovery and honestly I, I am so so grateful that 
that that book exists. It it really absolutely really is like foundational <laughs> to me. And and so I'm I'm so happy that this is this is part of this. And you you say when we don't treat our bodies with respect and kindness, we often end up hurting ourselves in various ways. And you give an example about how you're someone with arthritis and you used to ignore your body's signals and push yourself too hard. And sometimes there, you know, you could barely walk, but showing kindness means paying attention and listening to your body. And I think for so many of us outside of gender, but definitely including gender expression, disassociating is, uh, something I, I'm very good at, I'll speak for mm -hmm. myself. And so I think it's, it can be a practice of becoming more embodied and present. And, and I think that's a, a real through line in your work. And I, I guess in the same vein, and, and now that you brought up Lindo's work and, and that book, something that as I was reading it, and of course, you know, we all read from our, our own perspectives and our own lens. Do you see any parallels with diet culture and fat phobia and internalized fat phobia and the way we view body size in our society and with gender? Oh, absolutely. I mean, not only parallels, but those things are so connected to each other. You know, we all contain many intersectional identities. And when you add on exploring gender or a gender diverse identity with being in a world that is fat phobic, that we get messages about our bodies, you know, even before we are born, we get messages about how our bodies should be, how they should behave, what they should look like. So yes, those two things I think are so connected. And I I love that you brought up disassociation and not feeling our bodies um, with with presence. I see that so much with folks who are exploring gender, is that it's very easy and often it is a coping skill that it has been necessary at some point in the past. It's very easy to disconnect ourselves from our body. And I have been definitely guilty of that between arthritis and some gender dysphoria, though I'm, I'm very lucky in that respect that I didn't have a lot of, of body dysphoria. I sometimes wish I was a brain in a jar floating around, but that doesn't really serve me. And so whether it's talking about diet culture or fat phobia, or whether we're talking about gender, the way forward is the same. It's about respecting our body, listening to it. It's about believing and acting on the fact that we all deserve pleasure in our bodies, whether or not we actively love our bodies. We deserve pleasure and everybody has access to that. Just this idea that we have to feel a certain way about our bodies in order to make changes or in order to be a whole person. Right, this idea of you have to love yourself before anybody else will love you. There's merit to that, but there's also merit to the idea that you are, are lovable right now, just as you are, whether or not you believe it. And sometimes believing 
that you are lovable and worthy requires you to take action that you maybe don't quite feel yet. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite parts of of your work as well. And you you talk about that, I think, or you expand on that point in some of your work with your clients where you you say you've seen people wanting to make a change or or do something big, whatever it is, whether it's gender transition or a move or whatever. I think this this can apply and 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 I'll I'll I definitely relate to this and I'm sure a lot of people can at different times in their lives, but you won't take any steps. You won't take the first step because you don't know what step 10 is yet. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you help people through that? Yes. I see a lot of people get stuck in this anxiety and worry loop where they think that, hey, if I worry about this thing enough, if I gather enough information, which often means, you know, going down Reddit holes until 3 a.m. or YouTube holes until 3 a.m., um, if I figure out how to control every single aspect of this choice that I'm thinking about making, then it will definitely turn out well. Or the flip side of that, if I don't control and have zero uncertainty about anything, then the choice I'm making is definitely going to turn out badly. And people get very frozen but because they are so afraid of an outcome that is unknown. And I want to normalize that first, that that is not just about gender. That is our life experience as humans. There's just a lot more pressure put on it when it comes to gender. So the way that I help people through that is instead of focusing on that step 10 and that outcome, which is impossible to know, we focus on what is step one or what is even step 0.5. What is the tiniest, easiest thing that you can do to move towards something you are curious about? And that, that last phrase, I think is the key, not something you were certain about, not something that you know for sure, but something that you are curious about. And what that does is the second that you take a step forward, you get more data. You get to check in with yourself and your body and say, how did it feel to take that tiny step? Do I feel really scared? Do I feel excited? Is it a, a mix of both? And that gives you information um, and a gut check-in as to whether the next tiny step might be right for you. And that puts us in a headspace of play and experimentation, which is in that prefrontal cortex which actually gives you much better decision-making capabilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really loved that. And something else about your book that's cool is there's a lot of great exercises. And one of them, I think, relates to this, or I see it relate to this, where you talk about it's a creative practice of you know, warming up these sorts of muscles to to get curious. And you suggest replacing I can't with I wonder. 
Can you talk about the 20 ways exercise? Yeah. So this is a fun one. I find when people are feeling stuck, there is a, a refrain of, I can't do that because this, I can't do this because that. And they, they can't really see a way forward. So a way to bring in more play and experimentation to that is to have a brainstorming session. So there's no pressure on it. There's no pressure to do any of the things that you come up with, but it is about listing out 20 ways that you might be able to do the thing that you're thinking of. Some of them can be incredibly silly. Some of them might be serious. And what tends to happen is that at the end of making that list, you see some more possibilities. Even if you don't do anything specifically that's on that list, you've now trained your brain to consider that there might be possibilities you haven't thought of yet. And it, the exercise in the book asks you to do that, yes, for gender, but first do it for something lighthearted, something that there are no stakes about. Uh, if you want to meet your favorite celebrity, what are 20 possible ways that you could make that happen? If you want to throw a like blowout party that all your friends are talking about for years on a $100 budget, what are some ways that you might be able to make that happen? And it's about retraining your brain to move away from, I can't do that, to, hmm, I, I wonder how... I could make this happen. Yeah, I love that. And I want you to meet Kate Blanchett. Oh, I want if anybody out there has a connection for Kate Blanchett, like we we're destined to be friends, I've decided. <laughs> Did you see Tar? Not yet. It is on it's high on my my movie list on Prime right now. You you have yeah, you have to see it. We'll we'll I'll we'll chat. When you when you do, you have to let me know. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yes. Um, Big fan of Kate Blanchett. Yeah, that I bring it up because in the book, that's that was your example of the celebrity mm -hmm. that, that you would brainstorm. Can you talk a little bit about human-centered design thinking and how that that framework impacted your work? Because I think it relates to the way you talk about decision making. It does. So I came across human-centered design thinking a few years ago, and I had been focusing a lot of the, the research that I was reading and things I was taking in on psychology, obviously, right? I'm a therapist. And this was me branching out into a different type of knowledge. And I found this framework for design thinking that, and again, I don't have it right in front of me, so I might not rattle it off correctly, but essentially what human-centered design thinking does is it says, hey, we've got these huge problems that feel unsolvable. So something like poverty or clean water or, you know, a big thing that is very, very complex. And it offers you a way to start brainstorming and coming up with solutions that is quick and that is full of play. So it invites you into kind of a brainstorming thing like I just went through with like the 20 ways that you could. And more than that, the thing that I think is one of the most important parts is that it has a bias to action. So instead of just thinking and brainstorming forever, you choose one thing that you've brainstormed and you try it out for a period of time 
you see how it goes, and then you get the data from it. It also is a framework and way of thinking that asks you to, to look at the past and say, hey, what things have worked and given me energy or been useful for whatever problem I'm trying to solve and what hasn't? How can we build some curiosity into that? And then another part of it that I really love is it's very collaborative. So human-centered design thinking often uh, discourages you from doing what they call writing at the whiteboard or designing at the whiteboard, which is just you and a marker and a whiteboard going to town instead of getting people in the room that you can bounce ideas off of, that can be a support, who might have a solution for something that you hadn't thought of because you don't have their life experience. And I, I love that frame as a way of thinking about gender because gender and gender transition often can feel like one of those huge, big, kind of quote unquote, unsolvable problems. And this way of thinking turns the pressure way, way down on that and allows you to move forward as you are gathering data and yeah. with a lot of support. Yeah, I love that so much. It, and it's funny. I, I don't know if you've read this book. And honestly, I don't even know what it's called. I'm staring at it on my bookshelf, <laughs> but I, my eyes are so bad I can't see it. Uh, my friend and her boyfriend read it at the beginning of COVID. And I was over the, at her house for dinner just a couple months ago. And or I guess maybe like a year ago and and I was kind of having a rough time and and she was like hold on I'm going to get you this book and they both got a copy and really read it and changed changed their lives it's by these two designers and as I was reading through your book I was like oh this is so useful but it went in easier through your book and through hearing you know it's we all get information in different ways but I think yeah. that uh, taking that approach to to life and, and decision-making and, you know, whether big or small, I, I think is so useful, especially, you know, we're, we're meant to be in community and, and the importance of, you know, not like, like you said, being a, a, alone at the, at the whiteboard. And there's so many excellent points that you make, you know, in each, each part of the book, and I'm kind of jumping to the end, but it's, it's broken up and, and these, parts that I, you know, hopefully we have, have time to go into, but this is kind of a, a spoiler to the end. But speaking of that with, with community, I really loved the way you spoke about queering relationships and you talk mm -hmm. about the benefits of queering intimacy and friendships as well as romantic and sexual relationships. And, you know, really going off of what you said about the the importance of community. Can you talk about that and, and break that down a bit? This week's episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley is really cool. Listen, they make so many different products. You perhaps have heard me talk about their bars. I love a good bar, a snack bar of sorts, a nutritional powerhouse of a bar. I love them. I eat them all the time. They have incredible flavors. Maybe last week you heard me talk about their beef sticks that my friends super love and are great for an on-the-go snack, much like a superfood bar in that way. Let me just tell you about the bars briefly. They are made with 
organic, nutrient-dense superfoods, including being high in protein with pink Himalayan sea salt, pumpkin seeds, collagen. They're easily digestible and they taste really, really great. There's no sugar, there's no dairy. I love them, I eat them all the time. But that's not even what I'm here to talk to you about today. Today, I wanna highlight another one of their products, which is called the Essential C Complex. I've been taking it and I really like it. It's great because it's something that you can make sure gives you a little preventative measure from getting sick. You know, you can take it in the morning or in the afternoon. It is really tasty, honestly. You can just add it to some water and and drink it, or you can, you know, take it in capsule form. It's great when you're traveling. Nobody wants to get a summer cold. Nobody wants that. So, you know, stocking up some vitamin C through this incredible product is a is a great way to go it's of course made with extra wonderful ingredients with paleo valley essential c complex they use three of the most potent vitamin c rich superfoods on the planet so that's the camu camu berry the amelia berry and a cherry so it has 450 milligrams of natural whole food sourced vitamin c so there's nothing synthetic no harsh chemicals it's it's really great and i've noticed that it helps me feel a little bit clearer mentally it helps my skin when i'm getting a, a lot of vitamin c and they they say here actually that one study found that vitamin c can reduce anxiety symptoms in teens another study out of new zealand found that higher c levels were associated with an elevated mood both things that i'll take you know what i mean anyway it can also help with sleep there was a study that that found those who had trouble sleeping and only got around five or six hours of sleep a night had lower vitamin c levels so you know it, it's a really important vitamin it's a pretty well-known vitamin and it's one that you know you can take this wonderful product from paleo valley and get what you need or you can check out again any of their other products give them a try support them support the show go to paleovalley.com slash let it out for 15% off your first order stock up that's 15% off your first order at paleovalley.com slash let it out thank you so much in our society, we put romantic and sexual relationships on this pedestal of these are the types of relationships that have the most intimacy and everything else is a little bit lesser than, I would say, in most people's eyes. However, in the queer community, that often looks really different. And certainly that's not the only community that that looks different in, but it's the primary one that I have experience of this, which are friendships being treated with the same respect and the same commitment and the same levels of intimacy as romantic and sexual relationships. And as someone who has a family who isn't supportive of me and my identity, the idea of chosen family has always been one that is near and dear to my heart and very impactful for me. And I have developed these relationships in my life with friends that are just as loving and committed and intimate as a primary romantic or, or sexual partnership. And it has been 
one of the greatest gifts of my life to have those. And I find, especially when I'm talking to folks who are not in the queer community, that the level of intimacy that I have with some of my friends feels really different to them or or very um, out of the norm. And I wanted to bring that idea out for everybody to talk about. You know, Dean Spade, who is someone that I, I quote in Gender Magic, talks about it as treating your lovers like friends and your friends like lovers, meaning that you commit to time with your friends. You, you know, consensually figure out what does physical intimacy look like with your friends. Maybe it's not in this tiny box of physical intimacy is only for romantic and sexual relationships. And I give the example in in Gender Magic of, you know, having a couple friends, you know, one of them was going through a hard time and we all sat in this, it was a bathtub. It was a large bathtub, but it was a bathtub for hours, you know, just naked in a bathtub with wine, with friends and loving on each other, like holding each other's hands, saying that it's all going to be okay, talking for hours and hours and hours. And there's a lot of people that that image would feel strange to, but it didn't at all feel strange. And this group of friends, it felt intimate, but not at all sexual. Uh, And so that's the sort of thing I'm talking about is how can we start to develop speaking of metaphors, a mycelium network, an interconnected network of people that hold us up when maybe we're having trouble standing. And what does that look like if we extend beyond this idea of just romantic and sexual partners holding that spot in our lives? What are the possibilities there? Well, this part, I don't know why it makes me emotional, but that that example like really hits me hard <laughs> about yeah. the bathtub. It's so beautiful. And I just, I, I love that so much. I, I think, you know, my friendships are, are so important to me and similar to you, you know, with, with creating your own family and support system. And, and I, I just love that a, a long time ago, this, this person I interned for like 10 years ago, and I don't think this is her quote, but she would say, figure out how to make your friendships more romantic and your romantic relationships more friendly. And mm-hmm. that always stuck with me. And 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 friendship is so important to me. And the the older I get, I think, um, you know, it's funny. I I have this this uncle and he he calls me like once a year on my birthday. And mm-hmm. it's very sweet. And and he asked me like the same four questions, which are like, how do you have insurance? You know, that's like always <laughs> one of them. And then another one is, do you have anybody special in your life? And oh. this time I, w- I was reading your book when this birthday call happened. And and I was like, you know, what, Uncle Gary, I have a lot of special people in my life, actually, because he never asked me about friendship. And that's the one area yeah. I am excelling in. <laughs> Everything else is pretty bleak. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I, 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 you know, I think that concept for him, I think would be foreign, you know, which is really yeah. sad. It, it, it makes sad. me sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that. And I love yeah. bringing in special, like your special person. You don't have to have just one. You can have many, many. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's how we're kind of 
like you were saying, meant to to be. We all, I believe, are so interconnected. And what you say with transition not being the point, the point is to be more ourselves. And the more free people feel to be themselves authentically and express that to each other, the more intimacy they can have with themselves and then with other people. And then I think the more we realize that we are all connected and, and, and then it becomes, you know, so almost dire to, to want to, to bring everyone up to speed on that. Yeah. Beautifully put. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank you. I'm, I'm pretty much regurgitating your words because it's just <laughs> within me. Um, you, you talk about how we're often conditioned to think that there's not really a need to change unless something is bad and you take a different perspective and and talk about the benefits of taking a risk when what you have currently is good but what you could have is great can you talk about that a little bit yeah i think especially when we're talking about gender there is this idea that and the narrative that you need to be absolutely miserable and hate yourself if you are going to explore gender or transition your gender. And that really doesn't make sense to me. The idea that you have to hate yourself in order to be yourself does not make sense. And so I invite people to think about gender exploration as simply another part of self-growth and something that is an exciting part of someone's development. And as we apply that outwardly beyond gender, I think a lot of us get stuck in our lives with things being fine or things being good. And we think that as long as things are good, we don't have a reason to change them. When in fact, there might be a best out there. There might be things that you could be doing with your life or ways that you could be showing up, relationships that you could be having that expand your world beyond what you even thought was possible. So I always like to invite people to get curious about what are those moments in your life where you feel fully lit up? where you feel fully alive. And if those are not happening in your everyday life, how can you bring more of that in? How can you seek out those experiences? And when you do have those experiences, what does that mean for you? Are there ways that you need to shift your life so that they are more in alignment of this lit up biggest self that you've seen some glimpses of, but you aren't quite there yet? And that is a lifelong process. I certainly am not there, period, in my life. And I have made a lot of moves and taken a lot of risk, frankly, in my life that have gotten me to a place where, you know, 10 years ago, me could have never imagined where I am today. And that excites me because it means that 10 years from today, that me might be in a place that I could have never imagined now, but I'll never get there if I don't allow myself to notice and get curious about when I am lit up 
and very intentionally bring more of that into my life. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of an exercise you have in the book, right? One of the exercises is you have people write a letter to themselves of today from themselves 10 years in the future. Is that sort of the thinking behind it? And have you done that exercise? I'm curious. It is. And yes, I have. So that is an exercise that I took from, I think the first time I heard about it was from Debbie Millman, who's a designer and kind of human-centered design world somewhat. And yes, I have done it myself. And I did it myself. And it was so life-changing. Now, it sounds silly in some ways that this could change things for you. But I have found that it's incredibly powerful. Like you said, you write a letter to yourself of today from the you 10 years in the future. And you essentially go by from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you describe in great detail what your life is like, what you're feeling, who you're with, what your surroundings are, what you're doing, everything that you can think of in as much detail as possible. And then that's it. That is the exercise. You don't go back through and then are intentionally changing things. But what I do ask you to do is to read it, it's to read it to yourself for the first little bit, maybe once a week, and then maybe you go to once a month and every few months, and then a year from when you write it, go back and read it again. And what I found is that you are shocked by the things that change in your life naturally because you have now put it in your head that they're possible. It's like when you see, when you're looking for a red car on the highway and suddenly there's a million red cars that you had to notice before, when you were able to imagine this beautiful life for yourself, you naturally start aligning things. And it's, it is a little bit of magic, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Lacey calls that being expanded. Like you have to see to believe what's what's possible for you. Yes. And it's it's interesting because of a friend of mine who's who's a like advisor person to me asked me recently, like, how do you see your life when you're 50? And I was like, I don't, I literally like have no clue. I think it's important to to be able to have a destination to put in your car to, to, to try to pull you and use a metaphor I'm not going to do as well, um, but put something in the GPS and just start going towards it. And then you can, of course, reroute. But I think that that is so useful. And I I loved that that exercise and, and what you said about, um, you know, change before, you know, despite things being status quo changing and improving. I, I I love that. And you you give yourself as an example and in, in your gender expression as an example. And I I'd love to talk a little bit about style. Yeah. Because you've spoken about how, you know, your your non-binary identity and how that felt correct for you, you know, out of the gate, you know, just a, and and probably until you were in the expression of your gender that you're in now, you probably couldn't even have conceived exactly what it would would feel like. But I'm curious how your style has evolved and feeling 
you know, I've heard you talk about there's something about feeling more yourself and more comfortable in your own skin and, and how you express that in your style now. Yes, I love this question. I am a a bit of a design and a style nerd. So I get really excited to to talk about this. My style has evolved so many times in my life. Um, when I was identifying as a woman, which was up until probably, I guess, five-ish, maybe a little bit more years now, I, I was fairly femi. Um, I, and I enjoyed that. And then as I was discovering more about my non-binary self, I did what I think a lot of people do, which is kind of swing to the other far side of being uh, pretty masculine. And then as I've discovered more about myself, and I think especially since having top surgery, which is really interesting, I have been able to reclaim these more feminine parts of my style that I enjoy and am able to show up in my own skin with so much more comfort than I ever did before. And that has been a really interesting process of coming out of one box of this is what it means to be a woman and what a woman is supposed to look like to a non-binary identity where I did feel like I was put into another box a little bit of this is what non-binary means, which if you Google it, it's, you know, it's a lot of white skinny people in polos or in button ups. And that's just not it, right? It's being non-binary means that you don't identify fully with either male or female or you identify as both, or it is fluid, you know, how people define that is different. But for me, being non-binary means that I get to wear whatever I want. And often it is a mix of masculine and feminine, or I should say traditionally masculine and feminine. But I've, you know, rediscovered that I enjoy wearing makeup, um, I've rediscovered some more kind of feminine silhouettes that I I like. You know, I've picked up Chelsea boots again. There are things that have evolved when I got away from this is how I'm supposed to show up in order to prove that I am X gender identity. I just don't care anymore. And that is one of the most freeing things that I have ever experienced in my life. I love that. That that makes me so happy. And yeah, I'm so I'm so happy that you got to to talk about that and something that that lights you up. Gosh, there's so many more threads I want to pull and so many, so much more I wanna um <laughs> talk about with you, but but I hope I hope you'll come back. This is this is Absolutely. kind of a, a pivot out of where where we just were, but something I'd love for you to talk about is you know, and and I guess maybe it's not that much of a pivot because I think with with style and with expression and with gender expression and and just more generally, I think this this does actually actually relate. But you talk about how you've seen clients have an over reliance on how other people are seeing them as a measure of whether they are worthy or valid. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So with trans folks, there is, I mean, it makes sense that this is there, but there is a desire for other people to see you as the gender that you are. 
that is a very natural and understandable desire. We want to be seen and it is important to be seen. However, what I ha have seen in my clients a lot is that being seen can sometimes start meaning the grocery store clerk genders me correctly. Um, every time I'm on the phone with customer service, they gender me correctly. My family who know my identity are gendering me correctly. And those things don't always happen. So when your measure of success is I need a stranger on the street or someone who is blatantly disrespecting my identity to see all of who I am and to respect me, you're a lot of times setting yourself up for failure. You know, there are many people in the world, whether you are a trans or not, that their full identity, all of who they are, isn't seen by everyone that they come into contact with. And folks who are trans or non-binary are no different. So what I teach is to make success, like in quotations here, success when it comes to gender transition be about you. How do you feel in your own skin? What makes you feel the most like yourself? Because when you follow that thread, that is what true success is. And alongside of that, finding the people who no matter what you look like right now, no matter if you change your body, if you don't, if you take hormones, if you don't, how you dress, None of that matters to them really seeing you for who you are and respecting and loving you for who you are simply because they're, they see you, right? You don't, I'm sure you've had this experience of the people who are in your corner, they believe you when you tell them who you are and they respect you and love you for that without you needing to prove a damn thing to them. And that is what I want for people more than walking down the street and being gendered correctly, which might feel good. But ultimately, it's the people that who are in your corner, who are your chosen family. Those are the people who matter alongside how you feel about yourself, because that is something that no one can ever take away from you. I love that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we all want to be seen and understood as ourselves. And we're, we're afraid of, of that as well, you know, at the same time, because that's intimacy is like to really be seen. And so, so many of us in, in different ways, regardless of, of gender, I think, hide because it's scary. And then gender and gen gender transition, it, it ups the stakes, you know, to wanting to be seen and understood because I think being misunderstood feels so, so terrible. And, um, yeah, I just, I love the way that, that you articulate that. Thank you. Thank you. It, one, one more thing, just, just really quick. You, you talk about the cheese versus scary owl study and, and how that mm -hmm. relates to your gender freedom model. Can you talk about that? Yes. So this is a study that I first heard about in Emily Nagoski, Emily and Amelia Nagoski's book, Burnout. And they took 
two uh, sets of participants in a study. They put them in different rooms. They each got a kind of a coloring sheet maze. And one set of participants had a maze. It's a little mouse that has to get through the maze. And there is a scary owl in the corner of the, the page that is chasing the mouse through the maze. The other set of participants had the same mouse, same maze, except instead of a scary owl at behind them, chasing them, there was a, a block of delicious cheese at the end of the maze that the, mou- the mouse had to get to. And what they found was that the participants who had the coloring sheet that had the cheese on it made their way through that maze quicker and with less reported distress or stress. So what does that tell us? It tells us that when we are in a brain space where we are afraid, where we are running away from something, trying to get to a goal, it's going to be much harder to get there. And we're going to do it with a lot more stress than if we know and have a clear vision of what we are running towards and are focused on that metaphorical cheese as to how the the thing that we are trying to get to. And that's what I try to do in the entire book of Gender Magic is how can we envision this cheese? What does that look like for us? And what are the specific tools that we need to be able to get there with less stress and faster? Yeah, that that was also one of my favorite parts. And I I think it relates to the 10 years in the future exercise as well. All the exercises actually kind of bring, bring us there. And anyway, I, I love the book so much. It's, it's incredible. I'm so grateful that you came back to talk about it and I'm so grateful to know you and, and that, that your work exists. The, the last thing I just want to ask you before we take a deep breath if, if you have time for that. But mm-hmm. I'd really love to know what's your favorite part of the book? Or is there one part that you that you wrote that you were like, oh, hell yeah, I <laughs> like that. That was Ooh. really great. Or, you know, just something that you're excited about. Oh, that's a juicy question. There are two parts that come to mind immediately. Mm. One is there is a story in there about my friend Brooke that is in the the pleasure section that I absolutely love. It's a very special story for me. Uh, I wrote it in the book, but it existed before that as a, a live storytelling story that I have told. And it was very special at the release. I got to to read it and Brooke was there and was able to do a performance alongside it, which it just felt very, very special. And then the other part I think is probably the pride chapter, which is the the very last chapter because I knew it was the last chapter and I felt the full weight of, wow, I am writing the last chapter of my book and what do I want to say to people here? And I really was able to to speak from my heart in in that chapter in a way that felt really resonant with me and that I'm really proud of. And it feels like a very fitting ending to the book um, and a way to kind of wrap anybody who's reading and the hug that I really wanted to wrap them in as I was was writing the book. It's your closer. It's my closer. <laughs> it's great. I love it. And it, and it is June that we're recording this and it's going to come out because it's coming out tomorrow. <laughs> 
and it is pride pride month so so i think that's perfect is there a a part of of pride and celebrating pride or or even that chapter just generally about you know celebrations this month that is your favorite or something that you want to leave people with around pride you know, we've talked about it being a scary time for trans folks and for LGBTQ folks, which I think makes pride so much more important. So personally, it has been really beautiful to start going to pride events. You know, I'm around queer people a lot, but it, you know, it's queer Christmas, right? There's so many events. There's so many ways that LGBTQ folks are being celebrated this month that are really beautiful. So I'm looking forward to getting sweaty on dance floors and watching drag queens do their thing. Um, some at all ages shows gasp and and really just getting a chance to celebrate with my with my community how beautiful it is to be a queer person even despite everything that is going on in the world it's not something that i would trade about myself for for anything mm, i love it well merry pride happy holidays <laughs> thank you <laughs> happy pride um Thanks. thank you so much for being here and celebrating pride with me here on on this show i'm i'm so grateful and is there anything else that that you want to leave people with that you wish i would have asked you or that you want to let out? I am so grateful to be here. It is always so amazing to talk with you and it always flows so great. So I've been having a wonderful time too. Thank you for having me. The last thing that I would leave people with is just this idea that the world is better when we are all able to show up as our most authentic selves, as our biggest self, as our most lit up self, free from fear and shame. And I hope that that is a mission that we can all get on board with, no matter what your identity. Oh, thank you so much, Ray. You're you're so wonderful. I hope I get to meet you in person someday. And I hope you come back on the show many, many more times and write many more books. <laughs> yes. Yes, please. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Let's end with uh, taking a deep breath and, and letting it out. Inhale, let it out. <sighs> Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. That was my conversation with Ray McDaniel. Follow Ray everywhere. Get yourself a hard copy of Gender Magic. They're really great. Obviously, you just heard. I'm so grateful that you're here listening. My additional show with Serena Wolf Spiraling will be returning in the fall, but we're going to do a Q&A episode. So if you have a question that you would like to submit, send it into spiralingcommunity at gmail.com and Serena and I will answer it on the show. And, you know, this podcast, Let It Out, has its own Instagram, Let It Out with three T's, if you need anything. And I have one spot open in summer creative consulting. So if you want to scoop that, the link is in the show notes. And of course, the newsletter to get show notes sent right to you and to get occasional essays and lists from me. That's the spot to do it. And... 
Thank you again so much for listening. This podcast is produced by the wonderful Brianna Bain and theme music is by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. 